Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 8. And I tell you, to be honest with you, you're really going to want to have a Bible in front of you today. I think if you're, if you're interested in following along, I think it would really be helpful to you to have a Bible. I know this would be very embarrassing, but if you don't have one, we have some on the back table back there. Feel free to go back and get yourself one. Uh, you're, you're welcome to keep it, actually. But if you want one, pull out your phone, whatever. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible as today we begin a journey in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. And I want to tell you, what happened to me after I read, the statement I made in my own mind after I read chapter 8. And this is the quote that I made to myself. I said, oh my goodness, and I thought chapter 7 was going to be hard to make relevant to us today, right? That was my first thought in reading chapter 8. Before we actually look at the vision, let me remind you that we've turned a corner in the book of Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are narrative, they're stories. The last uh, five chapters, seven through, through 12, are these apocalyptic visions where Daniel is seeing these really weird things that are representative of other things, most likely things that are in the future for Daniel and his exiles. And in fact, all of the things that we see in these visions are, are future for Daniel and, and the exiles that are with him. Uh, some of them may or may not be future for us. They may be preterist for us. They may be things in the past for us, and we'll, we'll see as we go along. Chapter 8 brings about another change that I haven't mentioned before. Uh, I've neglected to talk about it. I wasn't actually going to, but I think it may be germane here. Let me just mention it. That the book of Daniel is written in two different languages. It's written in Hebrew, which is the language of the Jews, and it's written in Aramaic, which is, again, the language of the Jews, but it's, but it's more of a commercial language. It's a language that other people would have known as well. Now, the, the really strange thing is the book of Daniel is broken down like this. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapters uh, 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, the, the more trade language. And that's led some people to speculate that Daniel is really wanting chapter 1 and chapters 8, the one we're going to begin with today, through the end of the book. He, he really wants the Jews, these to be more focused on, on the Jewish exiles that are there. And the other ones in Aramaic, he may have thought those had something to do more with the Gentile audience that would be reading his book. Honestly, whatever we suggest is, is merely conjecture on our part. We don't know why he wrote in two different languages. The breakdown, it'd be one thing if he broke, if, if the narratives were in Hebrew and all the prophetic stuff was in Aramaic and all the, the prophetic stuff was in, in Hebrew, but it doesn't break down that way. It's chapter 1, which is narrative, Hebrew, chapters 2 through 8, which is Aramaic, chapter 7 through the end of the book are, are prophetic, so really we have books in both, in both sets of genre in both languages. So again, so let's turn our attention to the chapter itself. The vision starts like this in chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision. While I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, this is a second vision. It's subsequent to the one that we looked at last week. Again, if you were here, you remember this, but it was a vision of four strange beasts coming out of the sea. We said that those beasts represented different kingdoms that would arise out of, out of the, uh, the world of people. And, uh, and in that, we also saw this, uh, this, this other subsequent vision he's seeing at the same time of, of heaven and, and the Son of Man coming before God and getting a kingdom. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, if you haven't heard it, it's on our website. But in that vision, you know, this is a second vision that he has, and it's actually going to be complementary 
to, to the one that we just looked at last week. Now, this, this vision comes two years after the one we studied last week, and I was wrong last week when I told you that Daniel was about 80. He wasn't 80 years old. He was really probably in his late 60s or early 70s. It was probably 10 years earlier than I made it out to be, and I apologize for that. Belshazzar ruled for about 14 years, and these two visions are at the beginning, the first year of his reign, and in the third year. So this is two years later. Susa is a major city in Persia. In fact, Susa was the capital of Persia, and Daniel says in the vision he finds himself there. That doesn't mean that he's literally in Susa. He may just be in Susa in the vision. You follow me? In other words, in the vision he recognized, oh, wow, I'm in Susa. Now, how did he know that? Chances are, you know, remember, he's in politics. Maybe he's been to the capital of Persia before with the king, the king of Babylon at some time in the past. But he recognizes it. He recognizes where he, uh, where he is. Yeah, he sees a vision. He calls it a vision in this case. Last week he called it a dream. He mentions dream as well as vision. And that's led some people to speculate that a vision is when you're awake and a dream is when you're asleep. I, I don't think we can make such hard distinction. These things that Daniel saw whether asleep or awake, uh, he evidently is some sort of trance-like situation where he is seeing this movie unfold in his mind, okay? He's seeing this vision unfold in his mind. So if we can kind of imagine that, you know, watching TV or a movie, you imagine that's sort of what's happening to Daniel. He's seeing these things. Verse 3, Then I, Daniel, lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now he's in Susa, the city, in this vision. He finds himself by the Ulai Canal, and when he looks up in the vision, he sees a ram standing there by the edge of the canal. Evidently, the horns grow out as he's watching because he says one grows bigger than the other. So evidently, these horns grow out on this ram as he's watching. And, and one horn starts, but the other horn second, goes second and actually gets bigger than the first horn. Now, we know that the ram represents, now listen, it represents the Medo-Persian Empire because in just a little bit, later on in this, in this vision, the angel Gabriel is going to actually interpret this for Daniel. But I'm going to tell you right now, the ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which is about to take over Babylon. Babylon is at its, 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 at its very end, maybe 10 years or left to it, and, uh, and the Medo-Persian Empire is going to take over, and Gabriel tells, tells them that. The two horns represent the, the Mede section and the Persian section of the empire, of the empire. The Medes would come first, but the Persian would, when they make this alliance, the Persian section would be the stronger of the alliance. Now, in the vision, the ram uh, represents the bear of last week's vision. Okay, not to confuse you. Remember, there were four beasts. The first one was a lion with wings. Next, it was a bear with, that was bigger on one side, had three bones in its mouth. Well, this, this ram represents that bear in this vision. Or if we go all the way back to chapter 2, and, and I realize not all of you have been here for this, but if we go back to chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and remember he has a statue, has a gold head, silver chest, and then a belly of bronze, and they represent four kingdoms, and this is the bronze kingdom in the, in the middle, excuse me, this is the silver kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now in the vision, Dan sees this ram trample everything around it. I mean, no, nobody can stop it. I, 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 as I'm trying to picture what Daniel's seeing, he's seeing this ram just beat down everything around it, trampling everything. In the vision, it says it goes from west, north to south because the Medo- 
Persian Empire comes from the east. So it doesn't need to go to the east. It's coming from, from the east. Verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had had the two horns, which had been standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him, that is, the goat, hurled the ram to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So again, let's put ourselves in Daniel's place, and we're watching this vision. And so here's this ram. All of a sudden, there's a goat that comes from the west. It has one big, large horn, and it is enraged at the, at the ram. It attacks the ram, shatters the two horns of the ram, and basically tramples the ram to death. So this, this goat comes from the west, and again, Gabriel will interpret this very portion of the dream very clearly for us, and he'll tell us that the goat represents the Grecian Empire, that is to follow the Medo-Persian Empire by hundreds of years. And this empire from, the Greece, from Greece is going to come and destroy this uh, Medo-Persian Empire represented by, by the ram. The goat will attack the ram, shatter, break its horns, trample it to death. No one in the Medo-Persian Empire will be able to withstand the Grecian Empire when it comes. Now the large horn, again the angel tells us, is the first king of the Grecian Empire. And so we know who that is. We know who the first and greatest king of the, of the Grecian Empire was, and that was Alexander the Great. And the fact that the goat was like flying across the land represents the speed by which Alexander the Great conquered the world. Now you remember, if, you're, if you were here last week and you remember the vision at all, there was a leper that came out of the sea. They had four wings. And we talked about how that represented the speed by which the empire would rise. And indeed, within 12 years, Alexander the Great had conquered, had conquered the world. He represents the belly of bronze in Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2. Now, as the vision continues, you'll notice that the large horn was broken, and in its place, four smaller horns would grow out of it. Now, the large horn is, is definitely Alexander the Great. He died at the age of 32. He had just barely begun when, when he died, and his death is one of the great mysteries of antiquity. How did Alexander die? Uh, it was said that he fell ill after downing a bowl of wine at a party, and two weeks later he was dead. That's led some people to suspect that he was poisoned. But, but modern medical experts have looked at what happened to him in those two weeks, evidently, and they have suggested that Alexander died of malaria, typhoid fever, or maybe even venereal disease. So the truth is we don't know how Alexander the Great died, but he died at the age of 32 as just a young man. Once he was asked, who's going to succeed you? And Alexander said this. He said, the strongest. And, and really, that's, that's exactly sort of what happened when, when Greece fell apart. When Alexander died, the four generals that were closest and strongest with Alexander the Great began to vie for who would be the strongest of them. And those four generals were Cassander, Ptolemy, Antagonus, and uh, Seleucus. 
And upon his death, all four of these top generals fought for supremacy of, of the Grecian Empire, each wanting to replace him. They fought the, and I'm not going to pronounce this word right, but they, they fought the, the successor wars. <laughs> How do you pronounce the Greek word? But they, they fought the successor wars for 40 years, and in the end just ended up dividing the kingdom between the four of them. Again, Cassandra would take Macedonia. If you know your, your Bible geography or your, your geography today, that was uh, where Philippi was in Thessalonica. I think that's modern-day Greece where Corinth was. He took, he took that part. Uh, Cassandra was actually really close to Alexander, but when he tried to consolidate his power over Macedonia, he had Alexander's wife, Roxana, their son killed, and Alexander's mother, Olympia, had them all killed to consolidate his power in Macedonia. Antagonus, he, he took Asia Minor, and uh, Ptolemy took Egypt, and Seleucus took Syria, uh, points, uh, and points east from, uh, from Babylon. Now, Antagonus, Antagonus and Cassandra really didn't have much to do with the Jews. Remember, they're kind of north there in Asia, where modern-day Turkey and, and, and Greece, so they're up there. So they really have nothing much to do with what happens down in the Promised Land. But Seleucus takes Syria, which is just above the promised land. And just below the promised land, Ptolemy takes that, that land, so Israel's caught in between these two generals. And so what happens is the land of Israel, or Palestine, becomes the fighting ground between these two generals who are constantly trying to have you know, power over one another. So many of their wars were fought in the promised land, and many of their wars were fought for the promised land. Then the first hundred years after Alexander's death, the, the Ptolemies controlled Israel. The Ptolemies went like this. There was Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II and Ptolemy III. Ptolemy is spelled with a P, but the P is silent. In the north, above Israel, were the Syrian kings or the Seleucans or the Seleucid dynasty. And Seleucus, he was the first ruler over that area, but then his son was named Antiochus. And then the son after that Antiochus had was called uh, Seleucus II. And his son was called Antiochus II. And guess what? Seleucus III and Antiochus III and Seleucus IV and Antiochus IV. That's how they went. The first hundred years of, of this divide of Greece was relatively peaceful in Israel because the Ptolemies ruled the land. But after that, the, Seleucids, I mean, the Seleucid Empire came after them, and so constant wars were fought there. But none of the wars, listen, none of the wars were as harsh as the one that would come when Antiochus IV would rise. All scholars agree, listen to me, all scholars agree that the little horn arising in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, is referencing this man. Let's look at verse 9. And out of them, that is the four generals that would rise out of the Grecian Empire, out of the four horns that, that grew up on, once the one horn was destroyed, there came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. That's towards Egypt, and that would be towards Parthenia, and towards the promised land, which is, of course, of course Israel. Antiochus was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. That was the title that he gave himself. Epiphanes means magnificent one, glorious one. I think he kind of had a pride issue. But anyway, he named himself uh, Antiochus the, the Magnificent. Now, his enemies did a play on words, and they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant Antiochus the Madman. And indeed, Antiochus was a tyrant and a monstrous man. He's been compared in history to the, be the first Adolf Hitler, Hitler as it refers to the Jews. The Jews consider him the first 
Hitler for their people. Antiochus IV would desecrate the temple of God there in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig to his god Zeus. And consequently, all the sacrifices of the city of Jerusalem and the people of God would end after he had polluted and defiled the temple. He outlawed the worship of Jehovah and the keeping of the Jewish law. You would be put to death if you were caught circumcising your sons or keeping the Sabbath or possessing a copy of the Torah in some way. Now the Jews would eventually revolt against Antiochus. He would, he would be up north fighting the Parthenians and, and while his men were down in, this, down in Jerusalem, the Jews would actually revolt against Antiochus. And after three years of living under his torment and the defilement of the temple and, and the, the ceasing of worship and the sacrificial system, the revolt would be successful and they would kick Antiochus' army out of the promised land. Now that is known in history as the Maccabean revolt. You, you may have heard of that before. In fact, if you have a Catholic Bible and it has the Apocrypha in it, the Maccabean books are in there. It's probably be a good read. It's a historical read. But, uh, so the Maccabean Revolt, and we celebrate, or we don't, but the Jews celebrate the Maccabean Revolt in what we know as Hanukkah. So at Christmas time, you know when they're celebrating Hanukkah all the time, the Jews are, and we've got to be really politically correct now, so it's Christmas, Hanukkah, and, and what is it? Kwanzaa. Okay, so now we, we have all of these. Well, the, the Jews are celebrating, listen, they are celebrating this event right here. They are celebrating the fact that the Maccabeans beat Antiochus IV and kicked him out and they cleansed, and they cleansed the temple. Antiochus would, as it says back in verse, let me go back and read the verse, I think it's verse 8, uh, or maybe it's verse 9. He says he, he, grow, he would grow, uh, that's right, he would grow, verse 9, he would grow toward the south and towards the east and towards the beautiful land. Well, that, that was Antiochus, and that's exactly what he did. Verse 10 says, it, now that's referring to the little horn that we just talked about, or if you would, that's Antiochus the fourth grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. These are not literal stars. These are people. These are the people of God. The stars are people, literally. They're the Jews. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So in Daniel's in Daniel's apocrypha, or in Daniel's, in Daniel's uh, apocalyptic writings here, the stars reference God's people. In, in Daniel, the stars are the Jews who are faithful to God. And there were indeed many godly Jews during the time of Antiochus IV. In fact, they were called the Hasidim. That, that name may sound familiar to you, but this is where we find the Hasidim to start with. The word Hasidim means pietist or piety. And the Hasidim were Jews in that time who said, give us give us death. We're not going to stop following our God. And they continued to keep the Torah, and they continued to keep the law, and they continued to worship their God. And Antiochus put them to death by the hundreds, if not thousands. It was out of the Hasidim movement that the Pharisees would come, which just goes to show you that just because you have a good start don't, don't mean you're going to keep it. And if I could just make, take a tangent note here, this isn't in my notes, it just occurred to me. You know, no matter how well we do today, we need to be vigilant Vigilant for tomorrow, right? But just because we were faithful today doesn't mean we'll be faithful tomorrow. And somewhere the Hasidim or the Pharisaical movement went from loving God to loving the letter of the law and forgetting all about, about God. 
The Hasidic movement today is a seek to return to the Hasidim movement of this time. You remember the, the Jews, you see, the, we call them Orthodox Jews that have the, 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 the hair and the, and, the, and the garb that they wear. Okay, they're, they're seeking to return to this kind of Hasidic, pietistic movement that these folks started back under Antiochus. Verse 11, it even magnified itself, speaking again about the little horn, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of hosts. And it, re it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Now, it, there can be no doubt that the commander of the host here is God because it's his sacrifice. And so it says that Antiochus IV would make himself out to be God and that he would remove the regular sacrifice from God and he would throw down the very sanctuary uh, of God. And that's exactly what we find Antiochus doing. And just like so many tyrants, so many ungodly men before, before him and after him, Antiochus is making himself out to be God. Verse 12. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. According to verse 12, this, this little horn, this, this person that we know today to be Antiochus IV, you know, he is going to uh, stop the regular sacrifice. When it says he flings truth to the ground, many commentators think that has to do with him stopping the Torah stopping the worship of God, he's flinging truth to the ground. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, uh, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings, mornings, I'm going to remove the word and there, if yours has and, evening, mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. So now in the vision, if you can picture this, Daniel's seen this ram, now he's seen this goat, he's seen them attack each other, and now in the vision, you know, he's heard about the little horn, he's seen things the little horn's going to do, and, and then in the vision, there's two characters here that now are talking to each other. And one of them says to the other, I'm going to assume one of them is Gabriel, as we'll see in just a moment. But one of them says to the other, how long is this thing going to go on? How long is the sacrificial system going to be stopped? How long is the holy place of God going to be trampled on? And he says the host to be trampled on as well. Remember host, speaking of the stars, but referencing people. How long is this going to go on? And he says 2,300, 2300 evenings, mornings. Now, the actual amount of time... And I know this is history, guys, but it's interesting. I hope, hope I'm keeping your interest. But for 23, uh, for the, the amount of time that the temple was desecrated was three years. From the time Antiochus did his sacrificial pig to Zeus in the temple of Jehovah to the time that the Maccabeans cast him out and restored the temple, it's three years. If you take 2,300 evening mornings and, and you, you translate them as days, in fact, some of your translations will translate that as days, right? You actually get almost six years, right? It's six years, like double the time. And, and so that's led commentators to try to figure out what did God mean here because everything else is, is very obviously this period. And uh, so some people have tried to say, well, six years was the entire time that Antiochus antagonized, <laughs> no pun intended, antagonized uh, the, the Jews in Palestine. But, but I think a better way of understanding that would be because they ask how long will the sacrifice not be there? Well, there was a sacrifice in the evening and a sacrifice in the morning. 
They did it twice a day, evening and morning. And so I have a feeling that what the angel meant was for 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices, the temple would be desecrated. Now, if you divide that in half, you get right at three years. So I think that's what, I think that's what uh, the angels are asking. I think that's what they mean. There, there's, no, there's no word days in there. It doesn't say days. It just says evenings, mornings. It doesn't even say evenings and mornings. It says evenings, mornings. And so that's led a lot of commentators to believe it's talking about the very sacrifices themselves, that 2,300 sacrifices would be prevented during this time, which turns out to be right around three years. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one looking like a man. So the vision is over. He's seen what he's seen, and Daniel's trying to understand it. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Daniel's trying to understand it. These two characters, one says, Gabriel, help him understand it. Verse 17. So he, that would be Gabriel, came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, that simply means human, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, verse 18, now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright, and he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So as the vision comes to an end, Daniel's trying to figure it out, and these two men are talking, and one says to Gabriel, help him understand it, and so Dan Gabriel starts walking towards Daniel. Daniel freaks out, and he bows down on the ground, and, uh, and, and then he passes out. <laughs> I don't know if he had a blood rush to his head, and that's why he passed out, but for whatever reason, he fell asleep. He passed out. Gabriel comes over, wakes him up, says, says Son of man, stand up. I, I want to help you understand, understand the vision. And Daniel's a bit scared of Gabriel. I, I imagine that, that would only be natural, being that Gabriel is an angel who stands, we learn later in the Bible, stands in the very presence of God. Now, twice Gabriel tells him that he's going to share with him things that pertain to the time of the end. And there are two main interpretations of what Gabriel means here when he says the time of the end. Let me share them both with you. And it's up to you and your study and your discernment to figure out what you think Gabriel's talking about. But he says to the time of the end. And some people believe, here's the first one, some people believe the time of the end means the end of time. Um, Everyone agrees that Daniel chapter 8 is talking about Antiochus. I mean that. I want you to understand that there is unanimity of thought amongst Bible scholars that this prophetic vision that Daniel receives of the Medo-Persian Empire being destroyed by Greece, its four kings, its little king that's going to torment God's people, that's Antiochus. Everybody agrees with that. But, but some folks believe that this prophecy of Daniel 8 really has a dual fulfillment and that it's, it was fulfilled here in, in the times of Antiochus IV, but it will be filled in the future. It'll be completed or come back around in the future, and it'll be fulfilled in the future as well. You, remember, remember, you may remember last week that we talked about how in the vision, the ten horns that came up from the, the destroyed Roman Empire, some people believe those ten horns represent ten nations that are going to consolidate sometime in the future to produce a revived Roman Empire. And so folks who hold to that say, well, you know, there's that, that, and who's going to lead that? It's going to be the, uh, the Antichrist. That's who's going to lead that revised kingdom in the future. And so the idea here is that Antiochus becomes a picture, a type of that Antichrist who's to come in the future. And so some people see the time of the ends to be the end of time. 
Okay, so this is going to be fulfilled in a secondary way uh, at the end of time. Now the second way of understanding that uh, time of the end doesn't refer to the end of time, but rather refers to the time of the end of the Grecian dominance over, over God's people. In his interpretation of the vision, Gabe starts out by saying this about Antiochus in verse 23. We haven't gotten there yet, but it says, In the latter period of their rule, in the last part of the, of the Grecian rule is when this little horn is going to come. And, and so verse 23 for the Christian Standard Bible reads like this, Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. So, so Gabriel's interpretation could be that this is about the end times, but it also could be about the end of the Grecian Empire and when it's coming to an end. So Ga Gabriel begins with his interpretation in verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of the Medes and Persians. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that's between its eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Not much is left to speculation in what Gabriel says. It makes it very, very clear. He continues in verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent, skilled, and intrigued. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evening and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, as Gabriel tells tells Daniel, but keep the vision secret for it to pertains to many days in the future. Now, Gabriel doesn't really add much that we haven't already talked about, so the only thing I do want you to note in, in his explanation of the vision, he says that Antiochus will be mighty but not by his own power. Did you see that? That's led many to speculate that demonic power was behind Antiochus, even as many have speculated that demonic power was behind Hitler and the things that he did. You know, Gabe does, Gabriel does not, uh, tells us that this, this, this Antiochus will oppose the prince of princes, a reference to God, though maybe not the loftiest one, but it's obviously talking about God. And he says he'll be destroyed not by his own power, but by power from without. In the Maccabees, in 2 Maccabees, they record how Antiochus dies. Let me read it for you. But the all-seeing God, the God of Israel, struck him in an, with an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with the pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange afflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as he was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. So evidently when he fell out of his chariot, he broke every body, bone in his body. Gabriel tells Daniel to seal up the vision for it's a long way off, and indeed it really was. Babylon would fall in 539 B.C. to the Medes and Persians. Antiochus IV would live in 160 B.C. That's a difference of about 370 years. So this vision would be fulfilled 307, would be fulfilled throughout time, but it would be fulfilled in its specificity in, uh, in about 370 years. It is interesting that at the book of Revelation, in the very last chapter, 
John is told in verse 10, he says, he's told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So God tells Daniel to seal it up because it's 350 years away. In Revelation, he tells John, don't seal it up because it's really, really near, and yet so many years have gone by. That's led some people to believe the book of Revelation is not about years and years in the future, but about things that pertained to the time in which it was written. Verse 27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. It's hard to understand Daniel's reaction. Why did he get sick? You know, why, why, why did this make him ill? And even after Gabriel's explanation, he says he still doesn't really get it. And think about it for a minute. It's really easy for us to overlay history back on this vision and see it in its specificity, right? to see how it's clearly what would take place in the future. And we'll talk about that in just a second, but, but it's easy. But, but Daniel doesn't get any of that. He doesn't, this is for some time in the future. He doesn't understand the point of it. He doesn't understand why he got this vision. But, but it's just strange to me that it makes him sick. You know, I, I don't know why that is, but it makes him, makes him sick. Now, that's the vision this morning. So what are the lessons uh, what are the lessons for us? Anybody, anyone want to take this part? <laughs> All right. So I, I have four quick lessons for us from, from this vision. Okay? And the first one would be this. The vision reinforces some of the lessons from last week. And I think God's in the process. I think God's always reinforcing his truth. And, and one of the lessons from last week is that no human empire will last. And indeed, this vision just strengthens that perspective from last week. It's not only not only every empire will last, no, no king will last. Every king is followed by somebody who's standing in the wings wanting to take over for someone else. And if it's not your son, it's your four generals who want to kill your son and kill your wife and kill your mom so that they can take over power from you. And the second thing, a reinforcing lesson from last week, is that the people of God will be persecuted until the Ancient of Days brings it to an end. If you were here last week, one of the things that we, we talked about in the vision in chapter 7 was that it says that the people of God will be given into the hands of people who will make them suffer until God says it's enough. And there's coming a time, everybody, when God says enough is enough and his people will no longer suffer. The martyrs will be no more. We, we, will, we will live with God in eternal peace and he will be our king and we're going to reign with him. And, you know, and, and even in this vision... Even in this vision, Antiochus Epimenes, the madman, you know, he's evidently removed by the hand of God. Not murdered by others, but removed by the hand of God. So I think the, this, this vision reinforces a couple of the lessons from last week. But here's a couple of, of fresh things for us. Number two, you know, I'm thinking, God, why this vision? And, and again, this isn't really for us, but let me just share with you what I think. I think this vision would reassure the generation of the Maccabees that their revolt would be successful. I might be wrong here. I mean, they, they may not have thought much of the book of Daniel. They might not have seen themselves in the book of Daniel. But I think they did. I think they saw themselves in the book of Daniel. And so if they did, they would have known that their revolt against um, Antiochus IV would be successful because they would have read it, that in three years they would remove Antiochus IV and, and they would once again cleanse the temple and restore the sacrificial system after three years of, of it being silent in that time. So... You know, uh, I, I think that that's one of the reasons for this vision. That's not really applicational for us, but it is nice to know, and, and it'll, it'll lend itself into the, my next point. 
Or my, yeah, my next point. So here's my third vision. This one, I mean, my third lesson from the vision. And, and this is really for us, okay? For all post-Antiochus generations. Here's, here's the, the lesson that I think God wants you and me to get from an ancient writing that was fulfilled back in 160 B.C., 2,160 years ago plus, actually more than that now. It is, that, that it is the pre-awareness of God and the investment of God in the direction of his world. And the theological terms for those, if you don't recognize it, is the omniscience of God and the sovereignty of God. Okay, God knows all things, and God sees all things. However, this thing we call, this construct we call time, however it is, God stands outside of it. And the Bible says that he sees the beginning from the end. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God, and there is no other. Hey, this is a word for us. Remember what happened long ago. Remember what happened back with Antiochus. For I am there, there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. I declared the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Here's what God says. You want the proof of whether, you want the proof of whether you're God or not? Do you know the future? If you know the future, you're God. That's what he says. And so one of the lessons for us that I think is really clear in this, in this passage is that God knows the future. And he knows it clearly because he clearly lays it out for us here. And there is no denying how this overlays with history. Now, I have to say this because, you know, it's true. Anybody who doubts the truthfulness of the word of God claims that the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel, but written after the effects, looking back on these things. So that's what you've got to do. If you want to deny if you want to deny God, then you're going to have to do that because this prophecy tells us that the book of Daniel... And God's word is his word. It's from him. And so we can, we can trust it. I think that's the encouragement for you and me today. God knows the future. But it's not just that God knows the future. God knows your future. God knows your future. You realize that? And, and can I tell you this about your future? I can tell you something about your future. Your future is assured. It is assured in this that you will rise from the dead. And you will be granted immortality, and you will reign and live with God forever and ever. Now, between now and that point, I can't tell you much about your future, right? But I can tell you by the promise of God and by the assurance of the one who knows all things, you will rise from the dead, and you will live with him forever and ever. Now, but I think there's one other thing about this, about this vision that I want to, to, you know, that I think this kind of ties in together, and is that God is involved in the investment of his world, God's at work here, you see, and that's one of the reasons why I believe that he gave this. Remember, he tells Daniel, seal it up. Now, that doesn't mean keep it so nobody can read it. That simply means protect it for the future. This is for the future. This is for a long ways off. So you guys make sure you protect this vision, right? 370 years in the future, the Maccabeans would remember, they would need this vision because it would be telling them what was about to happen and how, how God was going to intervene for them, etc. I don't know whether they walked in faith trusting the word of God, but I know this. God is involved in his world, and he's telling them so that, so that they might know the future. I, I am convinced that this vision supports the idea that God is directing, leading, guiding history to the conclusion that he desires because he's king. And as the girls sang early, earlier, his dominion is forever and forever. And my last, my last truth for us, my last truth for us is this, and it's just really, really simple. 
This vision rouses, I think, in each one of us a faith response to follow and trust this God of Daniel's vision. In other words, as you read this, does your heart not say to you, the God of Daniel is the God who is? Does does this vision that is so clear, so clearly pronounced hundreds of years before it's to take place, does it not speak to you to the greatness of our God? And so my, my, this last lesson, this last application is for, for all of us to just trust in God with all your heart, to follow the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the, he is the personification. He is the incarnation of God to become like us, to put on flesh and blood like I've got, to be a human like me yet, with, yet without sin, and to be a, a human that's glorified today. Jesus is the, Jesus is this God who predicted all of this come to earth. And I want to urge you this morning to follow him. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.